Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is historian Julie Desjardins. We are discussing her new biography, Walter Camp, Football and the Modern Man, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Julie is a scholar of gender and culture in American history, who has published books on women in science and women writing history in the 19th and early 20th centuries. In her new book, she looks at the same period of American history. Her subject, though, is the emergence of new ideas about American masculinity, particularly through the sport of football and the life and work of Walter Camp, the game's most important founding father. Walter Camp played football at Yale in the 1870s and 80s, just as American football was distinguishing itself from the imported games of rugby and soccer. Camp's ideas for new rules set the foundation for the sport of American football, and he was a recognized authority for further reforms of the game over the next four decades. As Julie explains in the interview, her editor was somewhat surprised by her choice of topic, given her previous work in gender history. But as she tells us, the work of Walter Camp in shaping the sport of football and its surrounding culture gives an important view of how the ideals of manhood developed at the turn of the century. She also notes that, as a fan of football herself, she gained a new appreciation of the game and the possibilities for its current reform by looking at its early history. Her book offers a balanced and vivid portrait of one of the key figures in American sports history, and it shows how Walter Camp's influence remains evident even today. Here is our interview. This week's guest in New Books and Sports is Julie Desjardins. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we typically start off uh, the episodes of the podcast by asking our guests to give a brief introduction. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and where you're from and uh, the kinds of research that you've done and what led you to write a book about the father of American football? Yeah, because it won't be obvious. (laughs) So uh, what can I say? um, I'm a historian of gender. And I did, let's see, I was a professor of history for about 15 years and just recently have become an independent scholar. But I still write on the same things I was writing on, and I'm just trying to expand my audience uh, beyond just academic audience, but certainly to maintain an academic audience. Uh, So 
most of the stuff I had written before writing about Walter Camp was strictly about women. Mm-hmm. Not because it, I, I always write about gender, but basically all the things that were sort of in my craw were very specifically about women. So I wrote a book called the Madame Curie complex, which is women in science. I wrote a book about women who engage in the historical enterprise, whether it's teaching it or, you know, any kind of preservation. And then um, I've written a biography of Lillian Gilbreth. So nothing about men explicitly, but I always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write about masculinity. And my wheelhouse has always been sort of post-Civil War period going up till about World War II. And there is so much going on with gender in that period. And you really can't write a book about masculinity and not talk about the athletics revolution in this country. And so I knew I wanted to write a story about football. And it's interesting because there's so many academic historians who've written about the crisis in masculinity at the turn of the 20th century, but it's really sort of abstract and theoretical sort of disembodied. It doesn't have a whole bunch of like really interesting human interest stories, this history. And I really wanted to write a compelling story that was much more humanized, but around football. And so of course I start doing all my reading on the history of football and it takes about, I don't know, 10 minutes before you realize how central a figure Walter Camp is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in this institutional story. And so of course my next step was to go and look up that biography, that you know, huge biography of Walter Camp, because of course there's got to be one out there. And lo and behold, the only thing out there is this biography that was written about him in 1926, which was, of course, right after he died. And you can imagine what kind of biography that's going to be, one of these sort of celebratory, hagiographic sort of things, written by you know, an admirer. And... It was certainly helpful, but I thought, oh, see, I have a whole different perspective. I'm going to tell a very different story about this guy. And that's when I knew he's going to be my lens into this crisis in American masculinity and into this world of this athletics revolution at the turn of the century. So that's where it came from. Well, let me ask about that because you use this term, uh, use this term crisis, and Mm -hmm. yet... Walter Camp's life and his career corresponded with the rise of American industry, the rise of the American university, mm-hmm. the rise of America as a global power in the world. Yeah. And, and he's, he's involved in all of that. And yet at the same time, you say uh, there was this broader cultural crisis and he worked uh, to remedy it. So can, can you explain this idea of how you see a crisis at the same time that that America is becoming uh, America, the world, economic and political power. Well, I just have to tell you, when I was first starting, like contemplating writing this book, I was talking to an historian, a cultural historian of this period, and I said to him, oh, I'm going to talk about the crisis in American masculinity at the turn of the century. And he, of course, laughed and said, you know, when have men not been in crisis? <laughs> and it's, it's sort of true, right? Yeah. But historians very specifically talk about this moment. They call it a crisis in American masculinity, but we have to be clear, it's a very sort of race and class-specific crisis. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very specifically white, elite, college-educated men mm-hmm. who are feeling a little bit like they've lost some sense of dominion that they used to have. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that this is an amazing time in America in terms of, you know, this is where the United States becomes the number one producer of goods in the, you know, in the world, and, and all sorts of things are happening that make the United States sort of look like the, you know, it's holding primacy in the world. But this very specific group of college-educated white guys, they are having a little bit of a, I don't want to say an inferiority complex, but definitely they're realizing that they have been brought down a peg. And, and when I say realizing, it's not like they walk around, you know, consciously saying this, but all of a sudden women are getting a little bit more political power than they used to have. You know, they certainly don't get the vote until 1920, but at the same time, some of them are entering local politics or at least getting, you know, involved in municipal reform and doing things that are, whether it's, you know, getting involved in college education or the professions, these used to be places that only these men had access to. And then, of course, you start to see an influx of different groups of European men that didn't have access to the country before, but now they're coming and they're getting involved in local politics as well. Some of them are becoming quite successful in business. A generation or two out of the Civil War, we start to see some African-American men joining the middle class. And so there's all of these ways that men and women who weren't infiltrating their social space are now infiltrating their social space. And that's creating what historians refer to as this crisis. In masculinity. And until then, this elite group of white guys was not engaging in what you and I would call sport. I mean, certainly there were Southern men, you know, on plantations who were engaged in sport, but this was very much a leisure activity. Um, It was really a working man's thing, you know, to be engaged in sport before the Civil War. But the Civil War is this catalyst that starts to introduce sport to these elite men, namely in the North and college educated. And so this is the point of departure. This is when Walter Camp starts to enter college at Yale and he starts to get introduced to this organized world of athletics. And in some ways he's perfectly positioned because he's, he's right there where he can sort of develop these sports from the ground up because they're just starting to catch on. And football is, of course, you know, the, the per, he's, he enters football right at the moment when it's starting to be introduced to Yale and Harvard and Columbia. And, and so he can sort of start to, you know, tweak the rules and everything at the, the origins. And so his timing is perfect. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there was only one, one biography of Camp from just a year after he died. And... Uh, and a dissertation. Uh, and a dissertation. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, and and a good part of the research that you did comes from Camp's own archive. And and I'll ask you what kind of source material did did Walter Camp leave for historians? Sure. Well, he didn't leave. I mean, he certainly all of these documents were in his possession. But it was actually his daughter who took the time to organize them and give them to Yale. Mm-hmm. Now there have been tons of sports historians who have looked through these papers. Okay. 
many. And it's amazing because I was reading all of these institutional histories of football. And I mean, so many of these histories have to use this collection. It's really a treasure trove. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say it's, what, 48 reels of film, Mm. if you got it on film. And the first good chunk of it is just his correspondence. But then he also had all of these clippings that he kept, which is just a wonderful sort of uh, you know, it gives you a wonderful cultural record of sports in this period. And then, of course, there's some personal papers. But to be honest, the personal papers aren't all that personal. You really have to find, you know, you really have to look and look and look to find anything that gives you any real sense of him in his interior. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, he was very, very careful. And I think he knew ultimately that his papers were going to go somewhere for some sort of public consumption. And I say this because he's very careful. Um, There are a few people who write him. You know, he's got a lot of people who've got opinions about this emerging game, and they write him and tell him what they think of the game and what needs to change. And I remember one letter from a guy who, you know, it it was a real sort of um, Victorian F.U. is basically what he, you know what I'm saying? It was not a nice letter, okay? And I was looking for the response that Walter Camp was going to give this guy. There's no response, no response. Finally, a year and a half later, I find the letter and I match it up, and it is the response. And it was the most cordial, polite you know, thank you very much for your query into the game. And and I remember thinking, how could he not have been angry in response to this nasty letter? And I realized that in many ways he felt like he had to maintain this air of gentlemanliness. Mm-hmm. In some ways, because he realized that he was the foremost representative of this game and people hadn't made up their minds about it yet. Mm-hmm. And so many people thought that this game could potentially be brutalizing with its physicality. And he was trying to prove the opposite. Mm -hmm. And he needed to be the case in point. So I really think that he consciously tried to keep himself together. Mm -hmm. And you see it in his correspondence back and forth with people. And certainly he was a courteous man, don't get me wrong. But there were ways that he kept himself in check that surprised me in these letters. And, you know, because I mainly most of my career has been looking at the letters and the correspondence between women, there's a way in which you can trust the interactions between these women and their correspondence because they don't think other people are going to see these letters. Oh, yeah. So there's this way in which they're much more authentic, I think. With him, I had this sense that he knew that he was an important guy and that what he was doing developing this game was a very important American thing to do. And so he keeps it on the up and up in many of these correspondence back and forth that I found very interesting. Um, But there's just tons of this information. And so many historians have looked at these letters and have looked at much of this is institutional, you know, records of the rule committees that he was on. Um, after a while, I was a little bit cross-eyed just reading all of these. I was, I was going to ask, after, after reading uh, these, these much more intimate and personal letters uh, among women of the 19th century, how were you able to sift through, uh, which I've done as a historian, the, the minutes yes. of these rule meetings? 
these rule meetings, yeah, very, very different from stuff I had been reading before. And this, of course, was what most historians have used to write the institutional history of football. And, of course, I had to look at these records. But for me, I knew I was going to look at a very different uh, – I was going to privilege different documents because the institutional stories out there, and that's what so many people know if they know anything about his participation in things. They know that he's sat on these committees. And I've read so many of these institutional histories, and that's – you know, I could, I could see that, that those were the documents most people had been using. Um, but I really wanted to focus on those that I knew people weren't using. And so those moments where I could get a little more glimpse of what he was going through, you know, his human struggles – I certainly seized on those. And I feel like I was maybe reading between the lines of a lot of these documents in ways other people hadn't before me, because God knows many people have used these, these documents. Um, I just don't think they were using them in the way that I had intended, which was to tell a story about gender through them. Mm-hmm. To me, it was sort of a no-brainer, you know, because that's the way I look at the world since I'm a gender historian. Mm-hmm. And yet I would talk to people and they would think like that was the last thing that they would have thought to do with these documents. And I think it's just about, you know, how we're all oriented differently depending on our, our specialization, you know. Well, let me ask just some, uh, uh, some factual information about, about camp, uh, a thumbnail <laughs> sketch. Uh, where, did he, where did he come from? What was his family background? And uh, uh, when did he go to Yale? And then how long did he stay at Yale? Sure. He kind of never left. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So basically his whole background, his descendants go all the way back to England and they came to America, you know, the colonies in and around 1630. And his family had been in Connecticut for many generations. Um, He was actually not born. He was born in Connecticut, but his family moved to New Haven when he was five. And from there, He sort of never left. I mean, the only time he did not live in New Haven after that were about two or three years when he lived in Manhattan, when he was working for the Manhattan Clock Company and just starting after that with the New Haven Clock Company in their Manhattan office. But then he made sure he could move back to New Haven. And he actually uh, went to school in New Haven. He went to um, a prep school that was in New Haven and very much a feeder into Yale. So he gets into Yale in 1876 and he finishes what we would call, you know, an undergraduate degree by 1880, but he sticks around. And the funny thing is he sticks around because he still wants to play football Mm -hmm. and there's really nowhere else you can do this. This is really the center of the football universe, as small as it was, you know, in the 19th century. And so He goes to medical school, and to be honest, I don't know how much his heart was in going to medical school, but it was a way to stay around football and to stay around sort of the study of athletic bodies. He was always fascinated with this part of it. And so he sticks around, and then around 1882 is finally when he drops out of medical school. He's very close to getting his degree, but for all sorts of reasons that I don't know that he wants to admit, he decides it's not for him. And from there, he goes to work first for the Manhattan Watch Company and then the New Haven Clock Company. Um, and he sets up his life in New Haven. He meets his wife in New Haven because she is the sister of 
one of his former professors, William Graham Sumner. And from there, New Haven is where they, you know, make their family and where he makes his career. So let me ask about uh, uh, the context of Yale in the the mid-19th century. Uh, what were these these not only Yale but other universities of the Northeast? What were these what were these schools like when um, when Walter Camp arrives? He is coming to Yale at this moment of transition because remember it's it's mm-hmm. post Civil War, and up until now, I don't think what people realize is you know Yale, Harvard, Princeton to some degree, many these schools were sort of breeding grounds for men who were going to spend a life in the clergy, you know, people who are going to become ministers, um, and yes, academics. But these were not places where people went to become businessmen, per se. But that starts to change, and Walter Camp is entering Yale right when you start to see this new, this, this shift towards, I'm here to build professional connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and that starts to happen with him, and it really takes off. By, by the turn of the 20th century, you see that many of these men are there not because they want to you know, engage in book learning per se, but because they're trying to shore up connections when they become corporate magnates somewhere. You know? And so Yale, it's a little bit different from Harvard in that Harvard starts to um, become a place where they start the elective system. Yale, not so much. It's very much about undergraduate training there and about building character. And it's the kind of character that athletics is perfectly suited for. Um, It's not a coincidence that football develops at Yale, I think, because this is a new sort of new sort of type and it's very American and I think we're very familiar with it and it really is the breeding ground for this and I suggest that Walter Camp is developing it. It's very American but at the same time something that you talk about is that there's a there's a good dose of imported English ideas that are mixed in. Yes, yes. Um, In some ways he models himself off of this idea of English amateurism and the sports he's creating are supposed to be very much in line with amateur sports in England. This shifts almost despite him. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask about what, what uh, so he goes to Yale, he plays football as a student, he sticks around to continue playing football, but uh, as you said at the start, this is a very different kind of football. So what did, what did early football at, at Yale and these other universities look like? Well, there's not an aerial game yet, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. The first, for the first few years, there's not even, there's not even a line of scrimmage. And it's actually Walter Camp who creates the line of scrimmage by basically legislating it into the game. It's through the rule committee. It's very much like an English scrum originally. And Walter Camp thinks that this is just way too disorganized. (laughs) Um, And so what he does is he says, you know, we need to have a clear delineation of offense and defense. So he creates a line of scrimmage right around 1880 or so. But before that, it looked a lot like English rugby. Um, And to be honest, there were sort of two early variations of football. One was more of that body-on-body contact 
um, sometimes it's referred to as the Boston game because Harvard first played it against McGill University in Canada. And then finally Yale takes it on. But the other one, the association game, looks a lot like soccer. I mean, you batted the ball down and you kicked it around. And Walter Camp is really probably the most influential figure in making football less about feet, <laughs> less about, you know, the, the footwork and kicking around. And he definitely wants men to pick up the ball and, and the, the tackling. He creates all of these rules that make football look like it looks like today with the, the, the low tackles. And he makes that, that kicking less and less important as time goes on. He almost feels like, you know, the aerial game, as well as the kicking game, it doesn't demand enough physicality, and it's not, like, earned in his mind. He says, you know, I really want that body-on-body confrontation on the line, and that's where men are made. So he introduces uh, these first changes when he's a player, when he's a captain of the team, right? He, yes. So he goes to his first rule committee meeting in 1877, really just as a bystander. And let me ask to clarify, so there aren't any coaches yet, right? Correct, yes. And that's the, the confusion. I mean, there's a captain, and the captain is basically everything rolled into one. He's the player, he's the one that organizes the practices, he comes up with strategy. But the coach, as a noun, really doesn't become that until around... I would say about 1890 is when you start to hear Walter Camp and others, Stag, for example, um, referring to the coach as a, as a figure, and as a figure that is distinct, distinctly different from the captain. And from there, the captain's role starts to get diminished a little bit. He's just a player on the field with everybody else. And he's going to be central then to the changes in the rules, the tweaking in the rules for decades to come. Because football, American football, is going to be in this basically a constant process of evolution into the early 20th century. Absolutely. And that's the thing that makes football so much more different for everything else. I mean, there's, there's rule changes in all sports, but literally there are significant rule changes year by year in football. And that's why he starts to become the editor of the annual rule book that comes out. Spalding publishes this every year. And every single team that develops in the United States has to get a copy of these because they, they changed so drastically in the early years. And anyway, they, they, all the way until he died in 1925, there were substantive changes to the rule books every year. And he sets that precedent. What, what's hard to know is what, when Camp is in the room with all of these other rule makers, who is really the most influential, right? Because we don't have the actual conversations. But I do know from the sort of side conversations before and afterwards that he's the one that's got the most sway Mm -hmm. so long as he's in the room. And sometimes he loses his, you know, the debates back and forth. And, of course, the perfect example of that was the aerial game. He did not want the forward pass. He felt very strongly about it. Once it passed, he worked with it, and he, you know, developed it. But that was one of the rare losses he had. And the reason why the aerial pass, the aerial game didn't even happen as early as it could have was 
because of him. Um, everything else pretty much went the way Walter Camp wanted it to go, to be honest. I'm trying to think if there were any other substantive changes that he didn't agree with. I have to say there were very few. I mean, even in the years when football was in peril, mm-hmm. you know, too many men were, were dying or being maimed on the field. And even, you know, President Roosevelt said, look, you got to make some changes to the game. Mm-hmm. The changes that end up getting made for the most part are the ones that Walter Camp wants to make mm-hmm. and are his ideas, except for the forward pass. And even at that, once the forward pass happens, he finds a way to work with it. Unfortunately, it's the beginning of Yale's downfall because it's, they're not very good at it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely the teams west and south who pick up on, on the forward pass and really come to use it. So other writers, in talking about these rule changes and some of the, the motivation behind them, uh, other writers who've written the institutional history of football have mm-hmm. pointed out the connection. As you mentioned, Camp worked for decades at the, at the New Haven Clock Company. Uh, mm-hmm. Other writers have made the connection between Camp's work in industry and yeah. his ideas for football. Did, did you see that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the people that was very influential to him was, of course, uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor, who, you know, started the whole idea of scientific management. And there's no doubt that the scientific management that you see on the shop room floor, you know, in a in an American factory is what camps trying to achieve on a football gridiron. This idea of efficiency and, you know, before Walter Camp put his hands on the game, there was no clock dictating, you know, the stopping and starting of of play. He's the one that imposes that, which is, of course, yet another very important facet of the game. I mean, it's the one facet that English, you know, Englishmen would look and see the stop starting and say, what is this? (laughs) You know, and that was Walter Camp's intervention because he felt that if you had these men work against a clock, you were training them to be efficient. And that sort of efficiency, he would tell you, is very American and very effective. You know, if you want to create an effective brand of manhood in the modern age, this, this is how you do it. You make these men work against a clock. And so he imposes that onto the game, which makes football very much... Uh, a relic of this industrializing moment. So a main theme, uh, as your subtitle suggests, and, and uh, as we talked about at the start of the interview, is, is football and masculinity. And, and Camp had uh, very clear ideas about the ideals of football and the mm-hmm. ideals of American manhood. And that comes across, and this was interesting in your book, that comes across in particular in his creation of the All-America team. Yes, yes. So conscious about what that idealized figure was going to look like. Basically, what he originally conceived of was not so much the All-American as much as the All-American team. It was, it was the group that he was fixated on and how effective this group can be. And of course, he had to come up with individual players who made up the, the group. But in his mind, he was picking the guys who put together were stronger than their you know, individual constituent parts. And it's only later, and you know, he's part of this transition, but it's only later that people start to think of the all-American team as made up of the best individuals. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. at any given position. Camp really didn't want people to think that. And eventually he realized that everyone was thinking it anyway, so he just ran with it. But he's, he's very much about the group concept. And pretty soon, you know, you start to see this rise in the cult of personality in American athletics, and everyone pretty much is fixated on that individual standout. Certainly by the turn of the 20th century, you can see that. Um, and that All-American, in some ways, is this iconic figure that is the really the ultimate man's man in this period. And he's, he's idealized until pretty soon those All-Americans start to be someone other than those Harvard, Yale, white guys. <laughs> and I try to show that, that shift when even Walter Camp admits he has to choose guys who aren't from the Ivy League aren't from New England. Um, People like Jim Thorpe, for example, who, you know, is, let's face it, an athletic specimen at this time. Um, And he is at the Carlisle Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is a Native American school that's very much an industrial school. It's not a college. Um, He ends up picking in 1916 an All-American by the name of Fritz Pollard, who's an African-American man who goes to Brown, not because he has any interest in getting an academic degree, but because he realizes this is where he can play football. I mean, it really is about, for him, the, the end game is about becoming a professional athlete. Um, and so he starts picking men, immigrant men. He starts picking men at state schools, you know, whether it's California or it's Kansas or Nebraska, and the complexion of that All-American starts to change. It's not that elite guy from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, which it was, you know, at the beginning almost exclusively. So Camp acknowledges with his selections for the All-America team the the uh, the changing um changing American male. And one of the things you also discuss is his attitudes in terms of uh, professional football. So you mentioned Fritz Pollard, who does go on to play professional football. How did he view when pro football begins at the turn of the century? How did Walter Camp uh, reconcile his devotion to the amateur ideal, the English amateur ideal, with this, this new brand of football? To be honest, I think he spends a long time speaking out both sides of his mouth. <laughs> I really do. Um, he, he touts the, the amateur ideal way, way well after the fact that he knows it's, it's not even it, right under his nose. Professionalism is growing and breeding, you know, and he, he always pays lip service to the amateur ideal, but at the same time, he sees that there are players being bought and sold. And quite frankly, he's making a killing on amateur athletics. And so this is one of the things that was very difficult. It was hard for me to figure out how I wanted to tell this story because it's not that I think he's dishonest. It's what I think is going on is in the United States versus England, which is at first his model, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in the United States, you start to see that athletics becomes a mode of social mobility Mm -hmm. for men who are not white or men who are not um, upper class, you know, and aren't at Harvard and Yale. In England, sport was serving a very different function. You know, you wanted to be seen playing sport because it showed your leisure, mm-hmm. you know. And what, what Camp starts to see is 
the end game in the United States, the actual score, you know, the win starts to be more important because it's not about how you look playing it. It's about the outcome because the outcome is what's going to create social mobility for the player. And that's where sports starts to serve a very different function in the United States versus England. And Walter Camp sees this happening. In some ways, he both accepts it, but also helps to create that change in some ways. He commercializes the game, too. He makes it bigger than life. He creates a situation where, you know, working class guys can enter it and it can make them into something. And after, you know, near the time where he's, I would say, gosh, probably by after 1910, he starts to see that sport is serving a very different function in the United States, and he comes to embrace it. So, but that wasn't how he started. <laughs> so, profession, so professionalization, entering professional sports, is a path to the American success story for, to, for, for his players to um, uh, attain prosperity then? Yeah, it's a, it's a mode of stardom okay. in ways that it wasn't in England. Okay, okay. And yes, exactly. I mean, there, you know, this is, he sees in Fritz Pollard, for example, up until this point, he would say the reason why you wanted to play football in college was because this is where you learned those skills you needed to become an effective man in your college afterlife. But then he starts to see that for many of these men, the college afterlife is more football mm-hmm. or more sports. And he would, it was not something that he ever aspired to. In fact, he wanted to continue playing football after college, but he thought, well, I can't do that in any sort of way that a Yale guy would do it respectably. Mm-hmm. Um, but he starts to see the generations after him being able to do that, and it's a respectable college afterlife. Well, let's go back to the, the 1890s and the turn of the century when when football was in crisis. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the deaths of players, uh, terrible injuries to players uh, mm-hmm. in football, and it looked as if football would be banned. There were universities that were dropping football. Uh, what mm-hmm. was the role of Walter Camp during this period, and what were the arguments he made for football to continue? He he is smack in the middle of all of these debates that are ranging. There, there's actually two moments of crisis in the game of college football, and I really one is around 1893-94 when the game looks like it it's going to be banned. He saves the game in some ways then. And then it's in crisis again in 1905-1906. There's a bunch of sort of um, high-profile deaths on the college gridiron. And again, that is when uh, Teddy Roosevelt intervenes and says, change the rules, do something. So, and then there's another crisis again in 1909, but it's not as big. By then, I think it was already so entrenched in American culture that it wasn't going to be banned. It just needed to be reformed. But... For that first crisis, 1893-94, this is a time where he is staunchly defensive of the game. And he says, no, I promise you that if the game is played as it has been designed, it is not man-breaking, it is man-making. The problem is all of these forces external to the game, you know, are corrupting it. But the game itself, like in its pure state, 
is a man-making game. And that's what he tries to promote in the press. And he, uh, he actually does all of this research, he claims. I mean, he, he did the research, but I have to say it's very, very tainted. Um, <laughs> Very tainted because I actually see all of the um, – in his collection, you see all of the data he collects. And, of course, he's very selective about <laughs> what he chooses to publish. Um, but he, he publishes this book called Football Facts and Figures. And in this, he says, if you look at, at all the data, you see that the men who played college football in the 1880s and 90s have only really pretty much been improved by football. He doesn't talk about the 20% who were literally, you know, maimed or permanently injured for the rest of their lives <laughs> after playing football. Um, but this is enough of a, of a publicity campaign. It's successful enough that it essentially saves the game. And they do create some, some rule changes, but, but really it's this publicity that he generates, largely him. Um, he has some high-profile people helping him out. And then again in 1905-1906, when the game is sort of on the chopping block in the court of public opinion, um, at this time, he is really being vilified. He was vilified back in 1893, too, but he's really vilified now, particularly by Charles Eliot, who's the president of Harvard, who says, you know what? Walter Camp created this mess. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who at this point suggest that it's his rule committee he knows that he's the one that dominates that committee, and he has passed this rule where they cannot create any changes in the football rules unless, unless you have a unanimous vote. And he's the one that insists on that rule, so they can't make any changes that are substantive, and his rule committee's got to go. And this is where we see this massive shift in the rule committee. From there, that's where you get the beginnings of what is now known as the NCAA. It's a group of reformers who say, you know what, we have to take this legislating out of the hands of the original IFA. And we need to pass some more substantive rules. Now, you would think that Camp, you know, his days as a football legislator would be over, but actually he joins that committee. <laughs> and, well, they invite him to become sort of a special member of that committee. And his influence on the football rules continue for the next 20 years. Um, but the, the game itself, it's hard because what you see, not just in the newspapers, but in, you know, the talk of college presidents, it's a real mixed bag. There are some administrators at these colleges who see all of this benefit to the game. You know, this is really hardening our boys, you know, because they didn't have a war or they didn't have all of these things that their fathers and grandfathers did to harden them. And this is wonderful. And it also generates school spirit. And let's face it, it generates a lot of money for the school. And then you see people who say, oh, my God, this is the beginning of the end. I mean, these are like gladiatorial contests and, and men miss class to go to these games and People bet on these games, and you see people punching each other on the field, and, you know, this is like, you know, Roman decline, you know. And so there's really both of these kinds of discourses going on, and camp is smack in the middle of these conversations. Um, I can't think of anybody, anybody more central to these debates than him at this period. So something that's notable, and you, you discuss this in the conclusion, is how there are these parallels 
between the debates about football at the turn of the century and the debates about football today with, with fears of player safety. Uh, there were studies done at the turn of the century, not only by camp, but by others on players' health. There were changes mm-hmm. to rules and equipment. Um, but something that's interesting in terms of camp's place in the dis- debate is he argued for something of an essence to football that had to be maintained. Yes, we must recognize the need for player safety, but there's something to this game that can't be that can't be lost. And you see mm-hmm. that today, as you point out, in the arguments mm-hmm. about player safety. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that he was obsessed with that I think we see today is he was obsessed with the narrative tension in the game. And anytime you tweaked something on the offensive side, you were going to have to tweak something on the defensive side to make it still competitive. You know, he hated when he sensed that one side had an edge. He really loved that it was sort of equally matched. And so if you, you know, made too many tweaks, you kind of had to make another tweak to balance it out, he felt, to create that that tension in the game, that competitive tension. And I feel like that's also going on now when – particularly when there were all of those changes made in the last few years over, you know, tackling with the helmet. And a lot of, a lot of people were critical that defenders don't have the, the arsenal of tools they used to have. And I think in some ways they're fearful of the same thing he was, that, you know, you're going to lose that sort of competitive tension in the game, which is really a, a narrative tension in the game. Um, also, there's this idea that if you make it a little bit, if you take the physicality away, you take away the game's ability to make alpha males, basically. <laughs> and, you know, this is a much more fundamental um, sort of ideology that's being created through the game. This idea that boys become men through a physical hardening and a creation of moral courage that only happens through this degree of physicality. And I very much see this in debates going on in this game still. You know, this idea that, you know, if a guy has his bell rung on the field, he doesn't want to acknowledge it openly because he doesn't want anyone to to think that he's hurt, you know, and you have to walk it off and all of this. I'm telling you that these were these were very much the same way that camp would talk about football and about the creation of um, moral and physical courage on the field. And you see it even through his fiction to young boys who, you know, before they played football, he would write these stories for boys in St. Nicholas magazine or whatever. And he would talk about that captain who knew that he was injured and he was in agony but, you know, the pain principle told him he had to stay out there because he was the leader and he was doing it for the men. And um, that narrative is so, so, uh, I, I see it. it I, I was watching a game, gosh, a couple weeks ago where I'm trying to remember which quarterback it was. He clearly was concussed mm-hmm. and refused to get out of the game. But now, of course, they have those protocols where he's got to get out. And so, you know, there's this idea that, well, he's never going to take himself out of the game. So now you have to have medical professionals who make that decision for him because a real man wouldn't make the decision to leave. And 
Walter Camp would say that very same thing back in the 19, early 1900s, 19-teens. He wrote quite a bit about this, this principle whereby, you know, because a real man wouldn't acknowledge injury or pain, now you have to have professionals, medical professionals, who make that decision to remove him for him because he'll never make that decision for himself because he's got too much physical courage. Um, the parallels are really astounding, I have to say. Well, we're almost out of time. And uh, I want to ask you in the, in the process of researching and, and writing this book, um, what, uh, at the end of it, what did you, what did you think of Walter Camp? Did you enjoy him as a person or respect him as a person? And then also how did it change your view of football? Wow. Um, well, for, I'll start with, with Walter Camp. Um, Walter Camp, in my mind, he was, he was such a respectable man that there were often times when I was waiting to see the other, the other side of him. And at first, when I was researching him at the very beginning, I thought, God, he's a little bit of a milk toast. <laughs> you know, I just, when am I going to find the, you know, when am I going to find that he was an adulterer or he was this or that? And Again, it goes back to what I was saying before. I feel like he very consciously had this public persona of being a gentleman because he knew he had to be that for his game. Um, every once in a while, I found these moments when he was actually quite vulnerable and angry and, you know, worried about the game. But it's always about creating this public persona so that people felt better about the brutality of football, you know, but look at him. He's a gentleman and he's saying that this is a good game. You know, um, he, I'll say this, I've never seen somebody work harder for something on all fronts. He was constantly, if he was not coaching football, he was writing about it. He was speaking about it. It was an obsession. And it's amazing that he had that kind of vision Given how, you know, when you first see the game, you don't even understand what's compelling about it. He creates what's compelling about it. And that vision is so rare. Um, and so he's, he's to be admired in that way. Um, I could barely find what he was doing in his professional life at the clock company, which is amazing <laughs> because he worked there for decades. He was always talking about football. Even when he was on business trips, it ended up being about football. And um, for him to have that kind of vision, I think is pretty astounding. Because even when you read things that he wrote in the 1880s, before this athletics revolution really grabbed hold, he was saying, let me tell you something about this game. And it, it, it amazes me, the, the sort of foresight he had in that way. Um, the game of football itself, it's funny, when I told my editor that this was the, the book I wanted to write, she said to me, she was worried. <laughs> she said, I'm worried that this is going to be a very schizophrenic book. Because, of course, since you do gender and you do a lot of gender theory and you're writing about football, I imagine you're going to be very, very critical of the game. But let's face it, you know, that's not what pe people who would pick up a football book would want to hear. And... She said, I mean, do you actually like football? 
And I said, I, I believe it or not, I, I actually do like football. I watch football every Sunday. You know? and, and she was like, oh, thank God. Okay, we can work with that. You know, <laughs> She was worried. She thought it was just going to be, I was just going to lambast. <laughs> the feminist screed against football? Yeah, and you know, as much as it may be needed or not needed, she said, I just don't think that that's going to sell. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So she was worried about the readership, especially through my lens. And I got to tell you, I, you know, I worried about it. And I, I'm sure people, you know, are excited. They, they grab the book, they read it, and they realize it's not, you know, leatherheads in book form and forget it, you know. But um, at the same time, it made me really understand what I appreciate about the game and that it's okay to appreciate the game and yet still understand that it needs some massive reform to continue. I think it was hard for me to admit that I liked the game and that I saw the problems in the game um, until I started researching this book. Because now that I've researched the book and I see how much the game has evolved, Walter Camp never feared change. Mm -hmm. He said, that's why this game is going to stick around when other games you know, are irrelevant. He said this will always be a culturally relevant game because he he designed it to have all this room for malleability, you know. And so I think that we can make all the changes in the game that we need to to make it safer, you know, dealing with CT and CTE and everything else, and yet still have something compelling and still have something with that competitive tension that he wanted. And so it kind of makes me more hopeful now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just I feel like a lot of people who really like football feel like they can't they don't feel they can be critical of football. And after reading this and seeing how critical people were in the beginning and how much the game had to be reformed and how much it's evolved in its own way, I see, you know what? You can still have a compelling game that'll still be popular and yet still, you know, we can make change in it. And so that's, that's the important thing with the historical perspective that I don't think you would get otherwise. I think people are so scared about changing the game now. And I'm telling you, if you have more historical context on it, you'd be less scared of that. You've been listening to an interview with Julie Desjardins about her book, Walter Camp, Football and the Modern Man, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and popular music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund, thanks for listening and enjoy your week.